I just hope our legacy is that we get to keep traveling and having wonderful adventures and working with really amazing groups of partners because that's what we really love to do. Hi, I'm Matt McKee, and welcome to Cherry Bomb the Podcast, a series of conversations with people about food, art, and sustainability. Today I'm speaking in the studio here in Boston with Donna Dodson and Andy Morline, the artistic duo also known as the Mythmakers. This episode is sponsored by Kukageddon, a part of my Sweet Blast series of photos. I created the series with the mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions that Sweet Blast has inspired. You can browse and purchase images in the Sweet Blast collection at theartofmattmckee.com. Please share this episode to your Facebook, Twitter, and all your social media so your friends can listen and join in the conversation. Folks, I am honored to have you guys in the studio here today. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled. We've had a lot of fun listening to some of your earlier podcasts, and they're very interesting. It has been a blast to do these and uh, meet all these interesting people. But let's start right off with the Mythmakers. Now, I first got introduced to your work as the Mythmakers when a good friend of ours, Joy Cochran, told me about what you had over at the Lars Anderson Park, giant blue jay made out of bamboo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 20 feet tall. It was stunning and uh, kind of freaked me out at first and then realized it was in a public space and I could walk around it. I could put my hand through the bamboo and, and watch it kind of wave a little bit in the breeze. Well, let's go to the basics. What is The Mythmakers really about? That's a great question. The Mythmakers, <laughs> we say it's a collaborative team. So mm-hmm. we have basically three careers in our household. We each have a solo career, and then the Mythmakers has a career. So mm-hmm. the Mythmakers specifically, it's our collaborative team-built work that we do with natural materials. And they are almost always a monumental scale, usually uh, some kind of magical, animal-headed, human hybrid or avatar they have a story. So they're celebrating maybe an unsung hero or women, or they're communicating about science or ecological concerns. So they have a message. So that's what we say when we talk about Mythmaker's work. As I was learning about the symbolism of each of these pieces and the different places where you've done them, I got thinking about how it was interactive in the space and was really kind of wondering what your drive is as artists to create these monuments in the public space. Well, slight specificity is a very important part of what we like to do. And one of the reasons that we really pay attention to site is because so often places link us to memories and make us feel at home and make us feel like we belong somewhere. And belonging is really important to us. We also like to celebrate unsung heroes, as Donna said, that are people that perhaps have been overlooked by time. One of the pieces that we did that's very site-specific was an osprey for Boston Harbor. We often supply each of our pieces with an avatar. They represent not just an osprey, but a person. And the person that we chose for the harbor was Rachel Carson. And the reason we said an osprey was because The Silent Spring was a story that Rachel Carson wrote, or a book, and it was pseudoscientific. It was Mm -hmm. very deeply anchored in science. She was a very attentive learner. But it was also very poetic. And we felt that when the hundred great scientists of the world were announced, she was left off the list. And we really felt like, oh, that's odd. 
But she's not celebrated as a scientist because she got all of her knowledge through being part of the system, the, the park system. She was an editor, and she okay. read and learned. Very fascinating, but we felt like she was someone who's been overlooked. Now, the book, The Silent Spring, as I recall, was really one of the touchstones for the environmental movement. Mm-hmm. Basically, it caused the international environmental movement. Okay. That book was read very deeply and widely. It was highly celebrated at the time, and it talked about DDT. And it said, oh, these chemicals are really good. Look at how they killed mosquitoes and they help with malaria. But look what are the side effects of this spraying, huge amounts, hundreds of millions of tons of it over our countryside, is it softens the eggs of our birds, mm-hmm. and especially predators who are way up on the food chain, and they continue to, to accumulate this in their fat, and they had weak eggs, and they would never produce young, and we were losing all our avian predators. I understand why that's important, but can you go a little bit further about why that would be important? Absolutely. We felt like she had sort of, in some ways, slipped back into oblivion. And mm-hmm. and also now, because of her work and because of the modern environmental movement, you can see osprey on the harbor and you can see osprey inland and you can see osprey in rivers. So right now, if you were a child growing up, you would not know that there was a time when you couldn't see osprey or falcons or these large birds of prey on our waterfront. And so we felt like it was an important time to sort of call her out mm-hmm. and celebrate her work, bring her to a new generation of public art. It's everyone. It's families. It's children. Mm-hmm. It's One thing we noticed that we brought into the sculpture, it was an osprey-headed avatar of her. In every single picture, she has on binoculars because she was always <laughs> out looking at birds. And so we gave her this necklace that was sort of like for a superhero because we just felt like she really was larger than life. Yes. Deserve the credit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great piece. Now, you were talking about site-specific. You folks have actually created sculptures around the world. Mm-hmm. One was in Taiwan. One was in Alaska. Mm-hmm. There was a series in New Orleans, mm-hmm. I believe. What draws you to these areas to do these? That's a good question. Let's start with <laughs> Taiwan. Taiwan was kind of a breakthrough for us because it was an American woman who had done a lot of Fulbright work in Taiwan and was just really enamored of the culture and the country and herself as a sculptor. And so she kind of discovered bamboo and just was very generous. So she set up a whole program to bring international artists as guests of a marine science museum to create environmental installations using bamboo and calling attention to all kinds of ecological concerns, basically global warming and rising tides. That one had a sister project in New Bedford that summer. We had made two, we were thinking kind of of sister cities, that these two sculptures would be both really considering the fate of the ocean. That's oh, wow. the two sculptures were communicating across the ocean. <laughs> and so in public art, there's that opportunity to maybe do more of a conceptual stretch, to really pursue a big idea mm. in public art. What is your definition of what art is? You know, I get that question a lot. And I think that great art is intelligent. It's more than just a thing that you look at because it's pretty, but it kind of grabs you and makes you think. And it's clearly made by a thinking person. 
So that's kind of abstract, and that's nothing to grab a hold of to say this is art and this isn't art. But in a way, it is. I think that beautiful decoration and well-designed buildings that hold our attention have that sense of intelligence about them that I think that bring value to them and make them works of art. Wow, that's heavy. All right. That's a great answer. (laughs) (laughs) How do you guys go about starting a public project? It's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Am I giving you all the hard ones? No, no, that's good. We do very different types of things. We've done installations in New York City on Broadway between Macy's and 42nd Street in Times Square. Oh, wow. Where you could only install between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., <laughs> you know, and you had to drive overnight. And we had a whole caravan of like five. And oh, then we've gosh. done Alaska. We were the guests of a botanic garden and we could work on site. We've used all saplings from the garden and the boreal forest. And it was more of a residency. Okay. In Taiwan, obviously, we used the materials there. That was also a residency. And you had a team actually in Taiwan of high school students. Huge team. Every week we had a different team. Oh my gosh. We had three weeks there, three different teams. And then every afternoon we were teaching at a high school a whole other group of students, a whole curriculum. Yeah, it was really intense. They got their money's worth. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a fantastic project that stretched us in so many ways. No doubt. Our helpers included a six-year-old child, but he came with his dad, who was a school teacher, who had pretty good English skills. So we also got a dinner invitation, (laughs) and we got invited out to eat in a park and watch the bats fly out of the cave. So, you know, it was putting up with a lot to get a lot, to get more than we ever gave. And that's the way most of our residencies are. The reason that we do this is because we love adventure, we -hmm. love travel, and we're really, really eager to survive making art. And uh, (laughs) those are things that, that we seem to be able to accomplish making public art for a whole variety of partners that are maybe not always the mainstream art museums. Mm. Yeah, our recent one this summer was in Camden, New Jersey. It was a big Bloomberg Philanthropies project. Cities can apply for a million dollars of funding to address a social issue from the Bloomberg Foundation. And if you get the money to address a social problem by commissioning artists that make art that draw attention to your social issue. Oh, wow. And so it's a really interesting project. We've followed their work in Florida They worked in Parkland after the shooting to try and help the community heal from the shooting. Anchorage, Alaska has won them to talk about climate change up there. Mm. It's so palpable. So in Camden, the issue is illegal dumping on their empty lots and just putting a fresh face on Camden, a different perception of Camden than that is a dumping ground. So they commissioned eight artists to come in and make public art so that you could see public art and not just this horrible dumping ground that they have to deal with. And so some things we apply for, and then some things we go out and advertise and market directly ourselves to botanic gardens or arboretum. We give a pitch. you know. So it's both things that are established that we're applying for okay. or we get invited to, and also us just trying to drum up business, you know, door to door. As any know, self-employed artist, yes. Yeah, it's, it's pounding the pavement when things are like, okay, what's the next thing? Oh, wow. Oh, okay, we don't have one. I guess we better, you know, do some 
marketing. So it's really a combination. Let me go on a tangent briefly then and talk a little bit about the business of art. So you guys are both professional artists. You make your living creating art. Finally. Finally. That, that did not come naturally. We've worked really hard at it. We're not kids anymore. <laughs> and we've reached the point where it's really hard for us to agree to do events that don't have some remuneration to keep us professionals. Okay. It's surprising how many places that run a business like museums and expect people to come in and do something for nothing. If you were a scientist, you wouldn't give a talk mm -hmm. at Harvard without being paid. Mm -hmm. I don't know why anyone would ask an artist to do something. The reason that a lot of places exist is because of the artists who contribute, who philanthropize their programming. Hmm. So did you have business skills going into this, or was it something that you acquired out of necessity? Or We were in different fields, you know, human services, education, mm -hmm. uh, higher education, library work, technology. You know, we had day jobs for, for many years, and we're always doing commissions, gallery work, museum work, public art on our own. When we met and got together and said, oh, you know, there's two of us, we could make something bigger maybe mm -hmm. than what each of us could make. We did snow sculptures, we did fire sculptures, and we just found that there were more opportunities with public art. So we kind of gravitated towards those more event-based type things to more six-month loan, three-year commission, things that were a little more substantial. It's not like galleries and museums where it's a consignment base. Like yeah. you do all the work, you absorb all the costs, you bring your work, and if it sells... Yeah. You know, hopefully yeah. you get paid your commission. You know, it's not like that. It's, there's a contract and it's very professional and public art. It's a different animal. And I wish more artists knew about that because I think more artists would pursue it and it wouldn't be seen as like not real art and all this other stuff because it's a career. It's a living. It's a professional. Mm -hmm. It's a profession that's sustainable. And that's not the case. I would say less the case with galleries and museums. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. When I first started out in college, I knew I wanted to be an artist. Mm -hmm. Part of it, though, was because I didn't do well in math mm -hmm. and didn't want to do accounting, didn't want to wear a mm -hmm. suit, didn't want to be mm -hmm. a corporate, as I thought, drone at the time. Mm -hmm. And so the colleges I went to never talked about the business side of art. Mm -hmm. I think that's changing now, but they only talked about, here's what composition is, here's mm -hmm. what the color theory is. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure I would have been open to it as a young artist at that point. Mm -hmm. It's important to hone your craft and yeah. to develop your voice as an artist. I mean, that's and, super important. And to understand when you put it out there. But it's kind of like the young executive who wants to go somewhere. At some point, he has to get his MBA. And that's really good advice for young artists who have reached a point where they feel like they're starting to like get attention and they want to figure this out. Get an MBA, not an MFA. <laughs> Learn how to count your pennies and sign your contracts. I'm really just saying that jokingly, really. But I think it's valid, too. I think Donna says, you know, we spend a remarkable amount of time doing marketing. And a lot of that's just follow-up emails. We're constantly talking back and forth over things. Now, both of you are individual artists on your own. Can you share with me a little bit about your particular mediums and what you're producing? I am doing wood carving, which I've done for a very long time. I studied with Joseph Wheelwright, 
back in the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a little studio on Wareham Street and had a little master class in there. And that's where I learned to carve. Before that, I was doing found object art and making faces and figures out of, you know, hubcaps and stuff like that, break drums. <laughs> when I met him and learned how to carve wood and I got into this vocabulary of these animal-headed mythological figures and mm. female figures in particular. And so I've created those forms in wood for many, many years. I've blown them up and done them in styrofoam, um, very large for public art projects, made them very small, cast them in bronze. I've collaborated with jewelers to make those figures. So that's kind of my my shtick. (laughs) I watched the Zoom video that you did with Babson that was talking about your mythological creatures and relating it to Wonder Woman, Yes, which I was fascinated by. But it also told me that you have a deep knowledge of our culture's mythologies. Do you study a lot of mythology and uh, cultural relevances? I do. Right now, I'm, I have an interesting position as an artist. I'm a visiting scholar at Brandeis University. And so research, I would say, has always been a component of my work, but it's given it a much more formal presence and it's given me more administrative support. So I've actually was awarded a Fulbright this mm. year. So I'll be going to Vienna And my host institution is called Tricky Women, Tricky Realities, and they're a digital animation film festival for women. And so I'm actually now working with Trina Baker, who's an award-winning animator, and she and I are translating my wood sculptures into digital avatars, and we're going to take all four of them and make a short animated film oh, wow. with these four characters. So that's really a new direction for me. The Amazon, I did a lot of research. Of course, Wonder Woman comes up over and over, and I've been going pretty deep dive on Wonder Woman. Interesting. And I was first introduced to your work with the sculptures of rocks and trees, like mammoth rocks and trees. Yeah, my rocks and my trees. <laughs> Yeah, rocks and trees. <laughs> rocks and trees. Yeah, yeah. What's up with that? Well, I'm still doing it. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, how did I get into art? Uh, you know, what, what do I make? I just loved that Donna just so nails it. She has her conceptual basis so solid, and her work has such an iconography and such mm-hmm. a narrative of form that is so easy to nail down. And I tend not to be so lucid. I tend to be very much based on gravity and the feelings that I have. No, both. Okay. Importance and weight. Okay. So stones, why rocks? Rocks link us to landscape. I grew up in Alaska. It's the thing that I ache for when I think (laughs) about the world. It's my rosebud, you know. It's the thing I go back to is that landscape place is formed by all those impressions that you see outside of you where you're going. Hmm. Why rocks and trees? I lived in a place that was so dramatic. There were little valleys that we would drive along that were on these steep hillsides, and they were all raw and naked of any trees because they collected snow. And it wasn't all the time, but occasionally there'd be a snowfall. The wind would blow in the right direction, and it would build up and build up, and then it would break loose an avalanche. 
And sometimes these avalanches were so mighty and huge. They were phenomenal. They would blow across the highways. It would take them days with big bulldozers and machines to move it. Days. Hmm. And the road would be closed. And in the process of that, as the snow melted, sometimes there were odd events a boulder or a rock that would land on top of a tree. And as the snow melted underneath it, it would be there precariously. (laughs) Not for long, for moments, maybe for days, sometimes longer. And there were always these unexpected things. And I think of landscape like we all think of these Appalachian Mountains. Those are are nothing. Those are little nubbins of what they (laughs) used to be. Gravity. So that's all that gravity that makes rocks, makes sand, makes our world, changes all the time. And I find that really fascinating. And I don't know whether I linearly express those things, but I have a deep respect for our natural world. And I try to upend it, make us pay attention to it, Mm. catch us by surprise. I consider myself an environmental artist, but a landscape sculptor. Okay. And those are really tough things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no small tasks there. <laughs> it's not linear. <laughs> well, I think I kind of get what you were going with, though, because when I was looking at your work online and when I had seen it in person, so much of it was about a precarious balance that was taking place using natural materials. And it always kind of blew me away. And there was always that tension of, you know, if it was the rock and the tree or the piece where there was limb of wood that had something on it that looked like it shouldn't balance there. It was only the structure within the wood itself that was holding it in that place. But because wood is a temporary thing, it's not going to be there forever. Going back to the myth makers, one of the things I was thinking about was that your sculptures are made of impermanent materials. It's not like somebody who's doing a giant sculpture out of iron. Is that part of what you guys are creating with the Blue Jay or with any of the avatars that are out there, they're made of bamboo or saplings or whatever they're going to eventually succumb to time. Is that part of your message? Definitely. We're really interested in renewable materials, recyclable materials, materials that are site-specific. The temporality, we always say, They don't last forever, but they create memories that last a lifetime. Again, we're really interested in the experience and the experiences that the sculptures create in people's minds. Mm. You know, people get attached to this idea of forever. Mm -hmm. And and forever is very conceptual, really, because uh, there's things like directors change and the piece goes away. Mm -hmm. There's things like maintenance, even Mm -hmm. things like bronze and stone and steel, they all need maintenance, painting, cleaning. And so those things cost money. So there's a lot of things, this idea of forever, it's not like a static proposition. It's a very dynamic one in the way that decaying is also dynamic. We like that they can be composted back into the earth. There was one of your pieces that I saw on the video, and I can't remember the location of it, but the tail of the bird became atrium or a pathway that someone could walk underneath and just to be within the sculpture on purpose is really neat. 
Mm-hmm. Do you, where was that? That was in Atlanta. If, if it's the one I'm thinking of, it was in the Atlanta Botanical Garden. And oh my gosh. It's still there. That one was Flannery's Peacock. So it was celebrating Flannery O'Connor. Who's <laughs> <laughs> Who is Flannery O'Connor? She's considered like a Gothic Southern writer, although I think she hated the word Gothic. <laughs> but she was a devout Catholic that wrote this fiction that was just such a gut punch. And so we wanted to talk about her because she's one of these authors that kind of gets reassessed every now and then. She talked a lot about African-Americans in her work. And I think as we revisit, you know, the racism of past generations right now, and we rethink how this country treats African-Americans, certainly she's gotten a lot of attention, both good and bad. And we felt like it was a time to revisit her body of work and revisit her as a person, and certainly in Georgia, she's a bit of an iconic figure that Georgians embrace as theirs. Hmm. So you mentioned the tale. It almost is like a rose window in it. It almost has this like sacred church-like feeling oh, wow. to the interior. That was intentional. Her imagination was epic. And you'll go, this was a Catholic, and she's writing about Catholicism? What she's talking about is about spirituality and belief, despite it all. You can have belief. And if you don't have belief, you have nothing. Hmm. And most of her people have nothing. She was famous as a child for teaching a rooster to walk backwards. What? There's like a videotape of her <laughs> teaching a chicken to walk backwards in her farmyard. Oh my gosh. So we created the peacock because she collected peacocks and um, peafowl and hens and uh, guinea hens and all kind of exotic birds. That was like Muscovy ducks. That was like her thing. Okay. And so we thought, aha, an avatar for <laughs> Flannery. <laughs> I mean, she needs a peacock. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun with that. You were talking about the impermanence and the concept of forever. And in the digital world right now, in our digital age, we have concept that your Facebook page is going to be forever. How is that, or is that even impacting what you guys do? Ah, forever. (laughs) One of the things that we try to make sure that we include in all our work is the selfie moment. And we enjoy that part of viewing art and Part of that is being engaged in it. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the digital world, Facebook, social media, certainly. We definitely try to harness social media. You know, we have websites. You know, those things last forever. But I don't think it replaces the experience of like seeing a sculpture, walking through it in a way that serves us because our work is temporary. So that serves us that we have all these different records and these digital assets of our work as a repository and archive. But I don't really think it replaces seeing something in person. And even as anything I make as a sculptor, it doesn't. I don't think it's actually very well served by the digital world in a lot of ways. Nothing replaces touching wood or Mm. sculptures three-dimensional. I just don't think digital technology communicates that very well. This question is another one that I ask everyone. It always feels like there's a sense of time where I can say, you know, at this point, what do you wish you knew when you started? But I don't know where to necessarily pinpoint where you folks started. I didn't go to art school. I studied with someone and apprenticed with them. I knew an artist in my church and growing up as a kid, and I went to his studio, saw what he did, but I didn't really know what do you do every day? How does an artist make a living? 
apprenticing with an artist taught me that work you have shows you sell your work you deliver it to clients you apply for things it taught me that that sort of nuts and bolts so I had a, a pretty good grasp of that I think again there's such a focus on like an art an artist is this thing and you show your work in galleries and you know there's sort of this idea that there's this real rigid career ladder and I feel like as an artist there's so much more than that mm. there's public art in so many forms there's all kinds of graphic arts and digital arts and applied arts and there's so many things this is true for every college student or just high school student there's so many jobs and careers you don't even know they exist as a thing that you could be paid to do true a set designer on and on and on and so it's that sort of thing of just explore and be curious okay i find it fascinating when i think of donna talking about having a mentor she met a real artist when I think back through my life, one of my dad's best friends was a real artist, but he was a dentist, but he was a real artist. And yet, other than that, I didn't know anybody who was an artist. Yeah, they did paintings, and my mom and dad loved paintings. They had some really nice work in their house. There was no encouragement in my family and my lifestyle that someone would do this mm. for their life. So I went off to college to do something else, but I was always a house builder and a tinkerer and a woodworker, and someone walked by with something that didn't look like anything. It looked kind of like a boat, but it wasn't a boat, and it was like, what the heck is that? He said, it's a piece of sculpture. And at that moment, I said, oh, I can, I'd love to do that. And he became my mentor of sorts. You know, he was teaching there as a young man. And I guess that's what inspired me. I don't know how many times, I mean, I'm not a young kid anymore. <laughs> it took me a long time to figure out that I was an artist. I'd call myself one, but I didn't believe it. And my mother knew this. My mother took me to theater practice and made sure I got to singing lessons and made me do all these creative things because she knew I was not a student and that, and that I had things that I wanted to do in my life, and I believed. It's just I never nailed it down. That was the one thing I wish I'd known earlier was that I had a creative soul and an artistic soul that, that could be that. And I'm living it. <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> Finally, I feel like I'm really, really happy. Oh, wow. In what I do. Oh, wow. And I think Donna brings that out in me. I mean, that's a lot of it. A lot of what we do is really a lot of fun. Awesome. What are you hoping the legacy will be? The legacy of the Mythmakers. I hope we make a name for ourselves, which I think we are. We've kind of made that crossover in some ways. We're really a crossover act because we we go between the fine art world and botanical gardens and arboretum. And there's certain acts that you see. There's Rivet the Frog, there's a Lego, there's a Origami, there's Dale Chihuly, mm -hmm. there's Patrick Doty. There's certain gigs. You see the trolls, Thomas Dambo has the big trolls. And so, you know, there's like the greatest hits of the public art and and us, I think we want to be that big. We want a, a commission like that. We also see our work as really having something to say. And so I think it works on all levels. There's a wow factor and a cool factor. It's organic. I'm not sure that we've written our legacy yet. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I just hope our legacy is that we get to keep traveling and having wonderful adventures, mm. and working with really amazing groups of partners, because that's what we really love to do. And it's really 
what brings joy to us, I think, is seeing new places, meeting new people, and talking about ideas and things that make us all feel like we're connected and more human. Wonderful. Wow. Last question I have, uh, and it's a much more personal question, I think, uh, even though we've talked about art as, I I think art is very personal to you guys. Um, But what is your comfort food at the end of the day? (laughs) On this we can agree. (laughs) Popcorn? And wine, red wine. (laughs) 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 Although sometimes... Nacho and beer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, we make a killer nacho. We do. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. Just pile everything on and put it grilled in the oven vegetables. To walk yeah. up the hill and come home and eat. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. Those Sounds like a plan. Comfort foods. Thank you so much, guys. Mm-hmm. This Thank was you. Really fascinating. Fun. I really appreciate you listening to this episode of Cherry Bomb, the podcast, the companion piece to Sweet Blast, which can be found at theartofmattmckee.com. Today's guest is Donna Dodson and Andy Morlane, The Mythmakers. The Mythmakers can be found online at themythmakers.org. Donna's work can also be seen at donnadodsonartist.com. And Andy can be found at Andy Morlein, M-O-E-R-L-E-I-N.com. Be sure to check out the show notes at theartofmattmckee.com for all the links and subscribe to my newsletter for updates on the site. You can reach me for questions and comments on Twitter at McKeePhoto and on Instagram at McKee underscore photo or drop me a line at matt at McKeePhotography.com. This episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast could not have been done without the help of Suzanne Schultz and CanvasFineArts.com, the specialist in coaching for creatives and editing by Bill Shamlian at Orb Sound. Thanks for listening and let's start the conversation.